0: I think failure is an interesting thing. I think it depends on how you look at it. You can change how you see it. So I've had a divorce. I've had lots of bereavements. I've had mental health issues. But all of those have led me forward to the thing I'm due to do next. Failure kind of stops you for a little while and gives you this space and time to refuel almost and to think about what the next step is going to be. So I see failure as actually quite powerful.
1: Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Activist, writer and speaker, Sangeeta Pillai is the founder of the South Asian feminist network Soul Sutras, which is all about tackling taboos within the culture. She's the creator of the Spotify award-winning Masala podcast, the show for South Asian women deals with sex, sexuality, shame, periods and much, much more. Sangeeta is also the creator of the Masala Monologue series of writing workshops and theatre shows in the UK and the US. She has been featured in the Evening Standard, Eastern Eye, Huffington Post, on BBC Asian Radio, in Brown Girl magazine, and has been a writer for over 20 years. Sangeeta was highly commended in the Arts and Culture category at the Asian Women of Achievement Awards, part of the Women of the Future programme in 2021.
0: I grew up in India, in Mumbai, in a very traditional Indian family. I was the first woman in my family to ever have a job, which gives an idea of how traditional we were. (laughs) So I was born in Kerala in a small village. My family moved to Mumbai when we were a year old, when I was a year old. They were trying to get me married off when I was 18, arranged marriage. So yeah, that's my family background. Very, very different to the life I live now.
2: Wow, where to start, really? I saw a really cute (laughs) photo of you on your website as a kid, and it said fighting Indian patriarchy from age three. So, (laughs) was was that always your mindset, or did it stem from something? Did something happen that particularly sparked you off on this kind of trajectory?
0: I always get asked this, and I always say, I was just born different. I was just born fighting and being a feminist. And I think my life that I saw around me probably also informed that my father was an alcoholic. He was abusive. There was a lot of violence growing up. And I saw around me that women had no power. They had Mm. no say. They had no voice. Like my mother didn't have a choice but to put up with that because she wasn't financially independent. You know, she didn't have any support. So I think it was a possibly a mixture of growing up quite feisty anyway, Mm. But also seeing how much women were disempowered, how much women were kind of really trodden upon because they were considered weaker in in the culture that I grew up in, in the time that I grew up in. So I think that informed my entire life. Mm. Um, So I was always fighting against what I was told was my life had value if I was married, my life had value if I had kids, my life had value if I stuck to the very narrow confines of my upbringing and I rebelled against every one of those things and I think that's where it comes from that's where the fight comes from I think
2: it must be hard when you're surrounded by this behavior and these values and this kind of attitude to buck that trend because ultimately you don't really know any different but do you just think you were wired differently or was it just something that you just recognized it wasn't right and it didn't sit right with you
0: I think I was probably wired differently, but something about the injustice of it that I saw around me, the way I was treated, the way the boys were treated, Mm. um, I think it was, yeah, I think it just sparked this fire inside me. But yeah, exactly like you say, Kim, it's really, it was really, really hard because literally no one else was saying the things I was saying or doing the things I was doing where if my family said, that's just how women are, I'd be like, actually, no, that's not how it is. And they'd be like, look around you, because everybody's doing the same thing. Everybody's getting married, everybody's choosing nice, safe jobs, you know, this kind of thing. So it was very, very hard. But I, I believe, and I absolutely believe this as cookie as to sound like my purpose of being in the world is to do this work is to do this work with South Asian women, to lift other women up and lift myself up. And I believe that's why I'm born in this world. You know, this is why I'm here.
2: And what was your academic experience like then? Did you enjoy school? What were you like as a student? What was that
0: whole experience like for you? um, I was very shy and very timid. And I think, again, that's, I think, a result now looking back of the violence in the house. Because I think I was just like protecting myself all the time and I didn't really... Kind of wouldn't say boot or goose as we say here mm. now. You know, I was just very, very scared, I think, all the time. Was it directed towards you, the violence? or was it Ma- just Towards my mom. mother. But right. it was, we lived, we were very poor. So we lived in a tiny one-bedroom home. So there was no way to escape it. And sometimes if it got really bad, like I'd throw myself in the middle of my dad hitting my mum to try and protect mm. her. But I was really little, but I, you know, didn't really know any different. But I think that's what made me really scared. I was very terrified as a child. So I went to school, I had a really good education. I went to a Catholic school, funny enough, like a a church school. And, you know, I had a decent education. It was very rigid, like Indian education system, even now. It's very much by rote. You're never really allowed to ask questions. I see my friends' kids here, the way they they learn. And it's so much more conducive to be creative and to ask Mm. questions. Ours was very, very rigid, but compared to... The many things that could have gone wrong. It was a decent education. And I loved words. I have devoured words all my life. My books were my, like my most precious possession. I had this little, three little books, three or four books in a little plastic bag that I'd go under the bed because it was a, in a tiny room and I'd go every afternoon because it gets really hot in India mm. to read under the bed. And those three books were like my life. <laughs> I read them and reread them. And we didn't have money. So kind of once every couple of months, my father would take me to the bookshop to buy a book and there were no libraries or anything like that, you know, like you have here. It was just the books you could afford and, you know, we couldn't really afford much. So that's how my life was. So good school, decent education. I started my love of books, but I was also very scared as a child, I think. So it wasn't like the best childhood.
2: And how did you first step into like, the vocational world? Did you supplement your studies? Did you work part-time or did you just go wholeheartedly into a career and you talked, you've already alluded to your love of words, but what was that like for you?
0: So I started working when I was in school. I teach kids maths and English as a way to kind of supplement the income at home. Because, yeah, Like I was saying, you didn't really have much money. And it helped me buy a few things that otherwise I couldn't have. I think I am probably about 13 or 14, so school holidays, you'd get three months off and I'd teach these kids. And evenings, uh, my school was in the morning and the younger kids went to school in the afternoon. So I'd finish my school and go and kind of coach these kids. After I finished my degree, I looked around and I couldn't really see what I could do with words. Like my parents said, right, you're not doing arts because that's just for people who can't do any better. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was the kind of wisdom of the time. <laughs> and I loved books and I'd see all these art students reading the things I'd read for pleasure. They were studying like Dickens, and Austin and all the things that I would just love, you know. So anyway, I went along with them because in those days I didn't have the strength to stand up to my family and to say, well, this is what I'm doing. Uh, So when I was 15, I did a degree in accountancy. I do eh. not even know. (laughs) If you ask me what's two plus two, I'll be like, oh, sorry. I'm I'm that bad. And I was miserable for five years of that course. I was just depressed. I just hated what I was doing. Finished that. And I thought, God, I can't put myself through this. I've got to find some way of doing something with words. And again, this is, you know, 90s India, you know, we didn't really have access to you know, understanding of what people could do. It was just very, you know, you're an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer, or you're a teacher, and that was that. So I happened to find this course on advertising. And I thought, oh, copywriting, what is that? You can write and people pay you for this. This sounds right up my street. So (laughs) I joined this one-year advertising course. And at the end of it, figured out what copywriting was. Started applying to advertising agencies in Mumbai, which is where I lived. Eventually got a job there, worked in a couple of agencies in Mumbai, then moved to Bangalore to work with Law, so quite big global agencies, and then moved to the UK. So that's how my work trajectory of my advertising career has been for about 20 years, I think, wow. worked as a copywriter.
2: And would you say that there has been a standout moment, or maybe even a person in particular, that has helped mould, maybe also sustain your interests and ensured that you were doing the right thing going in the right direction I mean we talk a lot about mentors it doesn't necessarily have to be that kind of person for you but has there been someone or something that's helped solidify that you're on the right track and you're doing the right thing
0: this is probably going to be something no one's ever said but I've never had a mentor the best mentor I've had is myself has been learning to trust my inner voice because that voice has always been wise. That voice has always known what the right mm. thing was. Like gut instinct. That, that gut instinct. I yeah. always had that very, very strong knowledge, almost of what is right and what is the way forward. But I wouldn't trust it in my 20s, because the world teaches you not to trust it, because you're supposed to like be rational and question things, which you should. But ultimately, I think we all know what's good for us. So I think it's now, coming into my 40s, that I've really started to listen to that voice and follow the voice. And that's led me to give up my career in advertising, set up soul sutras, create my podcast, run my workshops, do theater, get talked about in the media. You know, all of this has come from my biggest mentor, me. It's quite liberating to say that. It is quite liberating. And we're not allowed to say that as women. Mm. Even when I hear myself say, there's a part of me that goes, oh, that sounds a bit big. No, no, at all.
2: Do you think... think Could you talk more about, I don't know if a leap of faith is the right kind of turn of phrase, but like that trusting instinct to maybe to leave advertising and to go wholeheartedly into what it is that you're doing now. Was that hard? I mean, I'm assuming it wasn't just a straight severance. It must have taken a little while to go from A to B. But what was that period of time like?
0: So towards the end of my advertising career, I started to acknowledge this feeling of What am I doing with my life? And I think at some point, each of us wants our life to mean something, whether that's a cause, whether that's raising kids, whether that's whatever your thing might be. And I was aware that with advertising, while it was exciting and it paid well and all the rest of it, I wasn't really doing anything for the world or for myself in that sense. And I started to run these workshops, Masala Monologues workshops, where Mm. I'd get South Asian women to come together we talk about taboos in our cultures. And I've coached them on how to write a monologue, some sala monologues like vagina monologues. And I did about 20 of those. And I think about 10 of those were at the end of my advertising career. And I kind of instinctively started to do this without really any goal or idea of what this was going to be. But again, it was the same kind of listening to that inner voice to say, just follow this thing. There's something here. And Then the advertising just fell away, and I was, you know, I had some quite big mental health challenges as well at that point. And I had severe depression and anxiety. And as I was coming out of that, I thought to myself, like, okay, this is one of those moments in my life where I have to decide where my life goes. And it was very clear that it wasn't to be advertising. So I stopped working there.
2: What triggered the
0: depression? Was it just. Uh, I think it was just dealing with everything that had happened in my life. Mm. I had never, and I think we kind of carry on, you know, my mom yeah. had died in horrible circumstances, my dad's violence, the lack of a real childhood that I'd had. So there was a lot of grief and a lot of pain that I hadn't really addressed because I didn't really have the skills, I think, yeah. to address it. And they all kind of came together and imploded at the same time. And it completely knocked me off. And uh, a lot of the anxiety, I didn't really know what it was. I had PTSD, but I didn't know what that was all about. I didn't really have a word for it. Mm. And then slowly doing a lot of work on myself, reading a lot, looking online to see what this thing was that I was feeling. And I acknowledged, okay, these are mental health issues that have come from a lot of the emotional pain that I haven't processed. And it was a long journey and it's an ongoing, mm. I won't lie and say that, oh, it's all amazing. Now it's not, you know, it's just, it's ongoing, you know, it's stuff comes up every now and then.
2: Is your dad still in your life?
0: Or is he, he died two years ago. Right. right just at the beginning of uh, the pandemic. And that was another kind of wave of grief, mm. you know, as you can imagine. So in a way, I mean, you know, we're taught to look at mental health struggles as a bad thing. And yes, it was horrendously difficult but it also opened me up in a way that I don't think I would have been open before. Yeah. And it kind of just broke everything and kind of put me back together in a different way. And this different person that emerged was the person that was capable of doing workshops and podcasts and things like that, which I don't think I was before the person I was before wouldn't, I don't think would have been able to do this.
2: But it was obviously also the right thing because you've flourished. So you've played to your strengths and it's, paid dividends really
0: it has I think there's something about going with your your deepest drive almost and I think I have probably always had this since I was born this drive to kind of really talk about South Asian women our struggles our voices our challenges and going to that place and then just following the instinct of like okay what do I do with this keeping myself open like the Spotify opportunity that I just saw the day before, I think it was closing about finding more women of color podcasters. I entered, won the competition, got a little bit of money to create the podcast. So things have also opened up and I have been open to them as well. Mm. And it's just been a lot of learning though. You know, These are things I had no idea what a podcast was. I was on Google the night before into this competition, <laughs> what is a podcast? How is it different <laughs> <here> from radio? <laughs> you know, I didn't really know. So then, to go in to pitch to win, to then actually creating a podcast was a lot of you know learning. Um, and, it was, and
2: it's been nominated for two British podcast awards. It, one, it. it
0: won. One, two oh, my goodness. Uh,
2: two what a podcast was to win. <laughs> yes,
0: That's right. crazy. Uh, what was amazing was like the award ceremony. The last year we had an award ceremony at Brockwell Park. And it was one of these moments in my life that I always remember. I walked in and they created like these, it was an outdoor ceremony. So they had blankets with our names on it. And there was a blanket with my name on it. And to the left of me was a really famous person. To the right of me was a really famous person. To the front of me was a really famous person. I'm like, (laughs) wow, (laughs) this is really big. That's fantastic. (laughs) That's
2: so great. So across all the work you've done, podcasts and everything, is there any one thing in particular that stands out for you or that you're particularly proud of?
0: Um, So the last season ended with a live masala podcast where... I had, but I hosted the first ever queer wedding proposal. Brilliant. <laughs> very proud of this. So one of the guests of my podcast wanted to propose to their partner. We've been together for many, many years. And I kind of engineered it so the music would go off, and the lights would go off, <laughs> and the moment would happen. And the partner said yes, which we kind of knew they would. <laughs> this is uh, was a bit of a moment of like, oh, what if... <laughs> but it all went well and there was so much love in the room you know love from the panelists love from the audience and we all went to the pub afterwards and everybody came up to me and hugged me and said Mm. thank you for creating this space for us you know and thank you for i think somebody said to me that for making it okay to be the indian that we are rather than Mm. the one we're meant to be you know so that's a very kind of in south asian culture it's quite binary in some ways for women Either you're the good South Asian woman where you do this and this and this, or then you're not, you know. But I think the beauty of some of the work I do is like, yes, we can embrace bits of our culture and we can also question some bits of our culture. So that was a particularly proud moment for me.
2: Is a lot of your work about enabling people and giving them the tools to do what they're meant to do
0: in this world, is that a big part of it? Absolutely. I think it's about... Speaking openly about a lot of things that we haven't spoken about before, whether it's sex, whether it's our bodies, whether it's periods, whether it's mental health, there's so much shame and stigma attached to it within my Mm. culture. And the point of what I do is to open it up. And I talk, I'm very open. I talk about my mental health challenges. I talk about some of the struggles that I've had on the podcast, which then I think allows other people to feel like that they are not alone and that they can go and do something about whatever their issue might be. And I have guests as well who've got experience in that particular theme. And I think absolutely empowers and enables people Mm. to feel like there are options, that there are other people who are experiencing what they're experiencing, that they're not alone, and that it's possible for change to happen. Helping them find their tribe. Absolutely.
2: How did you first hear about the Women of the Future program and what's inspired you to be involved?
0: So it's a really lovely story. So there's a journalist called Alex Fox. Um, Yes. Yes, she's amazing. I love Alex. And all her multi-hair (laughs) colours. I know, I know. And Alex is such a wonderful supporter of me, my work, the work of other diverse women in the UK. And she put me forward for the award for the Asian Women of Achievement Award. And it was so wonderful. And she sent me this glowing email connecting me with Imran to say, Sangeeta does this, this, this work. And that's how I got connected. And that's, I'd never heard of the network before then. Mm. And then I got on this call where all the people that were nominated had a call. And it was such a lovely atmosphere. And everybody was so supportive of each other. And in fact, some of us have now formed our own individual little group. We meet for lunch every couple of months, which is lovely. Right. And being in that room at the award ceremony was such an amazing experience. This room full of powerful Asian Mm -hmm. women, you know, it was such a buzz. Just being there was fantastic. So that's how I got to know about it. And I also went to the award ceremony. There was a drinks thing for the Women of the Future Awards as well. Yes, yes. So that's how I got to know about it.
2: Right. I have some quick fire questions. What would you describe as your
0: greatest success? Masala podcast, I think. Masala podcast, because it's helped me reach so many, many, many people. I think it's about 70,000 downloads. Wow. And it reaches the UK, India, Canada, US, and lots of other little countries, Ireland. I see the statistics every day. And I kind of like to think of women in, I don't know, a little town in India listening to it. In fact, I get emails as well. I got a lovely email from this young 16 year old girl a couple of weeks ago saying, You know, I listened to your podcast and I didn't feel so alone. And I thought it was Mm. such a beautiful thing to say. So that I think is my biggest success. And And your greatest failure. My greatest failure. So I think failure is an interesting thing. I think it depends on how you look at it. You can change how you see it. So I've had a divorce. I've had lots of bereavements. I've had mental health issues. But all of those have led me forward to the thing I'm due to do next failure kind of stops you for a little while and gives you this space and time to refuel almost and to think about what the next step is going to be. So I see failure as actually quite powerful. Yeah, I agree. We don't often get a
2: chance to stop and just take stock, do we? Or just check ourselves and make sure we're doing the right thing. So failing forwards is the way. I love that. The mantra of women of the future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in
0: both your personal and professional life? I think, in both, empathy, kindness, and collaboration is what I am about personally. It's what I've always been about. And all the work I do is that as well. I create very empathetic spaces because that's who I am and that's how I want the world to be for me, mm. I think. And therefore, creating spaces where women can do that for each other and be kind and be supportive is incredibly useful I think in the world today we're made to feel like that there isn't enough opportunity there isn't enough space and that we've somehow got to fight each other for this very Mm. limited space but I don't think that's true so it was poverty mindset because it's almost created by patriarchy to keep us fighting each other because then they can do whatever they want you know So I actually think if we stop, if we support each other, if we're kind to each other and we collaborate properly and truly, I think we all win. I think we all move forward. Is there anything that scares you? Yeah, sometimes. You know, I wouldn't be human if I didn't. So I've made so many life choices that have led me to this particular path. So sometimes I do feel like you know, there's a lot of loneliness because my path is a very singular path that I've chosen. Sometimes I do worry about, will I be lonely? You know, mm. as I'm growing older, is this, you know, will I meet people who see me for who I am and love me for who I am? So there is that. That's my little fear. What's left on your to-do list? I have a feeling it might be relatively long. <laughs> <laughs> yes, how long have we <laughs> There's a new season of the podcast, Maple, for incredible women. I'm starting some new one-to-one workshops, uh, which are kind of quite specific. So sort of like a sex workshop, a self-love workshop, you know, a lot of these specific workshops where women mm. have told me, these are the areas where they struggle. I'm also in the process of writing a book. Um mm of That's like amazing. a memoir come feminist manifesto of, of my life. It's an ongoing project. I've been writing it for about two years now. And I kind of keep going back to it. It's something I really want to do, but I need to create space within my work to do it. Because writing as you know it's a very specific mindset yeah, to be, in, the right mindset to be yeah. in that space and not be distracted by other things. And my work is very outward facing. Mm. It's kind of very social media and interactive and people so it's a struggle to create that but yeah these are a few things at the top of my head and there's a few others that i i can't even remember this there's just a lot going on
2: thank you so much shangeeta it's been lovely talking to you and getting to know you a bit better and thank you for all the work that you do it's so inspiring thank
0: you so much for having me anyone who's listening please follow my work i'm on SoulSutras.co.uk. i'm on instagram and on twitter soul sutras. come find me come say hello it's always lovely to hear from you
1: thank you for listening to this week's episode of the woman of the future podcast if you enjoyed it please hit the subscribe button and while you're there why not give us a rating and review you know you want to for more about the woman of the future awards network and initiative please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. see you soon